Let's go back to 2014 and listen to this soundbite from then-President Barack Obama. We are not just going to be waiting for legislation in order to make sure uh, that we're providing Americans uh, the kind of help that they need. Uh, I've got a pen and I've got a phone. Uh, and I can use that pen to sign executive orders uh, and take executive actions and administrative actions that move the ball forward uh, in helping to make sure our kids are getting the best education possible, making sure that uh, our businesses are getting the kind of support and help they need uh, to grow and advance, uh, to make sure that uh, people are getting the skills that they need to get those jobs that uh, our businesses are creating. So today we're going to talk about executive orders because... Same problem, different president. This is the Free to be Free podcast, encouraging you to assert your liberty because you are free to be free. From listening to that clip, it seems that then-President Obama was making an argument that if Congress failed to act, that he could then take the ball and through executive orders take action himself. But this is not supported in the Constitution. In Article 1, Section 1 of the Constitution, it is clearly stated that all legislative powers are vested in a Congress. Now, it's important to note also that executive orders, or that term, is nowhere explicitly named in the Constitution. Now, as far as the president, as the head of the executive branch, he does have executive power, as defined in Article 2, Section 1. And in Article 2, Section 3, the Constitution states that the president must take care that the laws be faithfully executed. Executive orders have been affirmed by the Supreme Court, but the Supreme Court has clearly stated that any executive orders must have their foundation either in Article 2, Section 1 of the Constitution, where the president is taking care that the laws be faithfully executed, or must be explicitly granted by Congress through legislation. It should also be clear, especially to our current president, that executive orders are subject to judicial review. And this is one positive check and balance that the framers foresaw and have in place in the Constitution. But let's step back a second and take a look at some of the history of executive orders. Starting with President George Washington, In his nearly eight years in office, he issued a total of eight executive orders, averaging about one a year. Then the next five presidents each averaged less than one executive order per year of their terms in office. Once we get to Andrew Jackson, he averaged one and a half executive orders per year. And it's not until we get to Abraham Lincoln that we see more than 10 executive orders on average per year. He averaged 12. And then by the time we get to William McKinley, he averaged 41 executive orders per year. 
But then it begins with Teddy Roosevelt. He averaged a whopping 145 executive orders per year. Uh, Some other notables, Woodrow Wilson averaged 225 executive orders per year. And let's jump ahead to the record holder, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, averaging 307 executive orders per year while in office. Harry Truman, following him, averaged 117 per year. And then we drop back down to 61 per year with Dwight Eisenhower. And nobody goes past 100 a year. In fact, it looks like 80 a year was the record since uh, Harry Truman. And that was held by Jimmy Carter. And we come to some of our more recent presidents. Uh, The first George Bush averaged 42 a year. Bill Clinton averaged 46 a year. George W. Bush averaging 36 a year. Barack Obama averaging 35 a year, and Donald Trump, although he doesn't have quite a year in office yet, he's on pace to average 67 executive orders per year. Now that's some interesting history, but the real issue is not so much the number of executive orders issued, but the real issue is when executive orders go beyond ensuring the faithful execution of laws and the president uses executive orders to, in a sense, write a law. We know that the Constitution vests all legislative power in the Congress, not in the president. And contrary to President Obama's statement, if Congress refuses to act or refuses to legislate, it does not enable the president to legislate in their place. And I think at the heart of the matter is that people tend to judge executive orders, whether they're good or bad, solely based on the political outcome, whether they agree with that or not, and not on an objective analysis of whether the executive order goes beyond faithfully executing the laws and strays into the area of legislation. It's also important to note that when a president oversteps his bounds and issues executive orders which are in effect legislation, what's going to happen is when a predecessor is elected who is of a different political point of view, he or she is going to undo those executive orders and reverse the direction of those laws, even though technically they aren't laws. And the result is we effectively then have a king instead of a president. And whatever the new king wants, the new king gets. And I believe that this abuse of executive power authority is one reason the nation has become so divisive, because it then becomes too important who the president is. So you'll probably be excited when your guy is in office and he starts issuing executive orders that meet your political point of view But then, when his predecessor comes in from a different party, you're going to be pretty disappointed when he undoes all of those laws that your guy made. And really what happens then is the American people suffer because there's no stability of law and it's just going to go based on which political party is in power in the White House. And therefore, that's why presidential elections matter too much. Now, while it's encouraging to know that 
executive orders are subject to judicial review, I don't think it happens quite enough. So, while Barack Obama may argue that the president has a pen and a phone and with those devices can essentially pass law, I'm not too worried about that because we the people have a more powerful tool. It's Article 5 of the Constitution, and we are ready to use it. In our simulated convention in 2016, there was a proposed amendment adding an additional check and balance to the system, allowing a supermajority of states to abrogate federal laws, including executive orders. So if you think about it, an Article 5 Convention of the States is mightier than the pen and the phone. This is the Free to be Free podcast. I'm Paul Phillips. The opinions expressed are my own. You can learn more about the Convention of States project at conventionofstates.com. You can also find the Convention of States project on YouTube, Twitter, and Facebook. The first thing that you'll want to do at conventionofstates.com is to learn the issue for yourself. Then you'll want to sign the petition to let your state legislators know that you are ready to assert your liberty through an Article 5 Convention of the States. Until next time, stay free, my friends.